Okay, Acts chapter 4, and we're going to be at the end of the chapter, verse 32, starting there today, and just kind of glance back through the rest of the chapter, and just look and see what has led the people to this point, because the big thing from Acts chapter 4 is that Peter and John were arrested, but it didn't stop with their arrest. They've got uh, a big prayer in there. That's what we looked at last week was their prayer and how it was focused on the authority of God, on his power, on his sovereignty, and they trusted the Lord. And so that's why I prayed several times this morning that our hearts would say the same thing uh, because that's how they prayed. They weren't worried, they weren't wringing their hands in fear of what the government or those in authority over them would do if they continued sharing the gospel. They actually prayed for something that might get them even more in trouble. They prayed for further boldness to keep preaching the gospel. Um, I'm not a, a big reader outside of uh, like commentaries and theological books and stuff. How many of you guys really like to read? So even if you don't like to read and you'd rather watch the movie, you know that in the plot of a good story, there's kind of the main, there's the main plot and then there's side stories. And most of the time, those side stories add or build into the main plot, right? They explain maybe a character's background or thoughts, thought process on something more. And they, they kind of play into it. It's not integral to it necessary to the main story plot line, but it helps us have a better understanding of what's going on. The Bible is a book not written like normal fiction books or even nonfiction books at, at times, but it's still a story and there's still a main theme to the story, redemption, uh, but then there's side stories that kind of help us see and understand the main one better. You'll also know if you like movies or read to read books that a lot of stories are not just like totally linear or chronological. And so that's why you'll be watching a movie and then all of a sudden you'll get a flashback to something that happened before. Or maybe a, a different scene turns to something going on at the same time but in another area. And then eventually good stories will kind of start to wrap those things back together in the end. You know, uh, I, I think that's what's sort of going on here at the end of chapter 4, and then we'll see at the beginning of chapter 5, there's the main storyline, um, but then the there's kind of this side story that Luke includes, end of 4, beginning of 5. Like I told the kids, today we're going to look at the first part of what it looks like inside the church. And there's a lot of good stuff that happens today. I pray and hope that we'll be encouraged, challenged, but encouraged as we walk out of here. Next week, the the plot kind of thickens, if you will. And you've got um, not-so-good things happening. So here we see a more detailed account of what we've already seen back in chapter 2. So look, flip back to chapter 2, verse 42. And let me just read this briefly, 42 through the end of the chapter. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles'. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That sort of thing is already going on in the church. So when Peter and John are arrested, they're in prison. That's what the church is doing. They're continuing to meet together. What happened to Peter and John didn't stop that. Because we see at the end of chapter 4 that it's happening again or it's still happening. And what we get at the end of chapter 4, I think, is a little more detail into what's already going on. How they love one another. How they sacrifice for one another. In the beginning of Acts 5 that we'll talk about next week, we'll see when it shifts maybe the opposite view. When instead of giving, we get greedy. Or when instead of being genuine and showing genuine care and love, we start to get hypocritical. We see what happens in the beginning of chapter 5. I'll give you a clue if you haven't read it before. It's not good. But let's read chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, and get a better view of what's happening inside the church before a wrench gets thrown into things, gets thrown into it. So let's read chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Would you pray with me quickly? Lord, this hits in an area of our lives that we easily say, yes, Lord, take this, reform this in me, we give it to you. But then when it comes down to practicing it, I know my heart stutters. My actions don't always match with what I say I believe. And if my brothers or sisters who are listening this morning are anything like me, God, I pray that you would use this text to challenge us, to correct us, to encourage us, to spur us on, to do the things that you called your people to do, that the world might take note of it. And we don't do it for for their praise, Lord. We do it for your honor and glory but that they might see and turn to faith as a result. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is kind of a snapshot here. Remember, it's it's kind of a side story. It is important, but it kind of helps us understand the theme and what's going on in the church at the time there. The first half of this side story shows how these Christians are free from the love of stuff and firm in their love of people. And I like the way that that is phrased. Uh, that's kind of from an article John Piper wrote called Be Like Barnabas, Not Ananias. And he says this. 
He says, two of the effects of believing in Jesus are that the heart is loosened in relationship to things and tightened in its relationship to people. Being a Christian means being changed from the inside out so that you fall in love with people and fall out of love with things. It's a message I think we need to hear today. And he poses an interesting question in that article, convicting one for me to read, maybe for you to hear as well. He says, can you actually be firm in your love of people while loving stuff? Look at uh, the hearts of the people in the church in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. So who were the those who believed? We're talking about the Jewish Christians who had heard uh, them speaking in tongues at Pentecost. The Jewish, the Jewish people who had heard Peter's sermons, now twice, and had repented and been saved. And we're talking thousands of people. Now imagine this. Thousands of people are of, the way that Luke puts it, are of one heart and one soul. That's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? Because if you've been involved in any kind of group where there's differing views, and that could be a school board, that could be a, a, a council of some kind, that could be a church at times, you can imagine how difficult it might be for thousands and thousands of people to be described this way. One heart one mind or one soul. But all these people had had something similar or really the same happen to them. Now, they'd not all been healed like the lame beggar had been healed. They didn't all receive the ability to walk, but something deeper within them, in their soul, if you will, had occurred. They'd repented of their sin. Remember, these people asked the apostles, they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, well, repent and turn and believe in Jesus. And they do. And so they are here and they're all, they make up the church that's gathering. They were of one heart and one soul. You know what this really means? Is that this means that they were united in their purpose and in their belief. How? That's the question that I was thinking this week. How could this be possible? How can potentially thousands of people be united in this way? And I think the answer is actually very simple. And it's not that they all liked black olives or they all enjoyed swimming in the Jordan River or anything like that. I think the reason that they could be united and have the same purpose is because they all believed in the same person. They, many of these folks had literally seen Jesus risen from the dead walking around and teaching. The others, who maybe didn't see that, believed that it was true by their testimony. And so it wasn't what they thought about things. It was who they believed in. It's the same. It's Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead. They believed in one Lord, one Savior. They had one Spirit indwelling in them. The unity that this early church enjoyed, it wasn't fabricated. It wasn't made up. It wasn't stirred up by their leaders to make something that wasn't really there. In fact, they didn't really have to even create this at all. God did it. God established this. God is the one who creates unity, and he does it by the gospel, 
by the good news, by the message of Jesus. And that's what they were sharing. And in their, their obedience and in their selflessness, it continued. It kept going, at least for a little while. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives some encouragement for unity in the Ephesian church. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 2 to 6. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, he says. You see, that's what brings God's people together. It's not preferences over seating types or carpet color or lighting issues. That's not what brings the church together. That's not what holds us together for sure. It's Jesus. It's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Unity here in the early church, it doesn't mean conformity or uniformity either. It's not like all the Christians looked like everybody else. And and I think sometimes in, in church we can kind of get that way if we're not careful. We gotta wear the right kind of clothes. We gotta say the right kind of phrases. We gotta put our hair the right kind of way. I don't think that was a, a concern for the early church here. This wasn't an organizational kind of unity. You know, sometimes in our offices they bring uh, a cake in or, you know, they bring some kind of thing to unite the people and they do training and they try to get coworkers to like each other and to do things together. And, and that's probably good for the workplace. But the church didn't have to do that. The church still doesn't have to do that because it's not coerced unity. This is unity of the spirit. It's different. They were moved by the same spirit, and so they had the same love and care for one another. And because they were of the same spirit, they regarded people as more important than things. And it was surely beautiful to see. So beautiful, if you keep reading, Luke says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, I've said this a couple of times now in our study of Acts, but it bears repeating when we come to a verse like this. What Luke is describing is voluntary generosity. Okay? Spirit-led giving. It's not some early form of socialism or communism or Marxism. This isn't any of those sorts of things. When it says that no one uh, f- said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, they had their own things, didn't they? This kind of proves it. It's not like it was just all in this one big pot and then you just took from it. They had their own stuff. They just loved people more than that stuff. And they said, if my stuff can help that brother or sister, it's theirs. It was spirit-led. It wasn't coerced at all. This kind of practice, it might seem a little bit foreign to us, doesn't it? It might seem foreign to people outside the church especially. But sacrificial love is generated in the heart of the Christian by salvation through Christ. That's why we do it. That's where the unity comes from. And so because of that unity, we sacrifice for one another. 
But you know, it's, it's awfully easy to have the opposite mindset, isn't it? And, and we can think, and maybe dads, men, uh, we are susceptible to this more than others because we think, well, I, I need to, uh, to store things up for my family. I need to provide for my family. I need to keep this stuff safe for us in case we might need it in the future. Did you hear all the I statements? In that, no, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should not provide for our families. In fact, scripture is very clear that if you don't do that, you're in bad shape. Okay. But what I'm saying here and what I'm suggesting is that we need to keep maybe expanding who it is that we wrap into our idea of family. These early Christians were ready. They were willing to sell property, maybe even houses, They didn't have cars, but maybe even livestock, things that were very valuable in the world at the time, they were willing to just give it up as any had need. Now, we're not told all of the details about the distribution and how the apostles handled that, but it was carried out under their leadership, and it sufficiently met the needs of everyone. Now, in your notes this morning, there's something that's kind of in a a darker line, it says kind of a side study. We're not going to go through that this morning, but it's there in case you'd like to study that more. I mentioned that here in Acts, we don't really get specifics on how people were cared for, but Paul actually does get into some specifics of how the church ought to meet needs within the body and maybe even outside the body. And some of those verses are there and principles are there for you to look through this week and to study more. So I'd encourage you to keep those notes. If you didn't get a chance to grab one of those, there will be a copy of those uploaded along with the sermon audio tomorrow, and you can access those that way. But uh, Martin Luther says something really interesting in regards to generosity and money and uh, what I think the early church. And he says this, there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. Now, I don't know about chapter and verse for that necessarily, but you can understand and we can certainly see in this period of church life that sacrificial love and generosity were the norm. This is what was going on. This wasn't unusual for the body of Christ. And then in verses 36 and 37, Luke kind of lifts up a positive example. Okay, so now he's he's given some principles, he's told what's happening in the church, and then he sets up a good example. He says, hey, look at my guy, Joseph. And they nicknamed him. What did they nickname him? Say it out. Barnabas. Nicknamed him Barnabas. In verse 36 and 37, they kind of explain that. Now, we're going to get to Barnabas, but quickly... Go back to verse 33. It says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Look back at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So they've already asked God to work in them, not to remove the persecution, but to keep them strong and to continue speaking his word 
with boldness. And they were given it. They were given that boldness. And what was the result of that boldness? Great grace was upon them all. So the apostles are continuing to preach this life-giving message of salvation through the risen Christ. And what's the result? Great grace upon them all. With great power, it says, that they were preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And it resulted in great grace upon the church. I think these things are connected here. I read this week that great power and great grace are like these two divine bookends on a shelf. And the apostles are in the middle and they're speaking about what Christ has done like open books. They're sharing their testimony powerfully. They're saying this is who Christ is. This is what Christ has done in our life and in our heart. Remember, these are folks... That was one of the criteria of being an apostle is that you'd seen Jesus alive and they were given his spirit within each one of them. They, they saw him die on a cross just weeks before. They saw him be laid in that tomb, many of them. They also saw him risen from the grave and they saw him ascend into heaven. They had his spirit and they received power to continue proclaiming his glories, even in the face of persecution. It's almost like they were living as if Jesus was still alive. Think about that. The way that they're preaching about the resurrected Christ, it's almost like they were just living as if he was still there among them. I don't know if you guys like British crime shows. But my wife and I have gone down a rabbit trail on Amazon Prime. And there's one that's called Father Brown. You ever heard of it? Anybody? It's about a Catholic priest who solves crimes um, in kind of a fun little way. That series was actually a book series written by a guy named G.K. Chesterton. And he was a famous British author, 1874 to the early 1900s. Uh, that's his best-known priest detective show father brown uh it's said that he's he's a born-again believer and the story goes that a reporter caught up to him on the streets of london one day knowing that he was a christian and tried to kind of stump him a little bit and so the reporter asked him he said hey if jesus christ risen from the dead in the flesh appeared at this very moment and stood behind you what would you do? The story goes that G.K. Chesterton looked the reporter squarely in the eye and he said, he is. You get it? He is there. Now, maybe not visible to us, but he's there. And we ought to live as if he's alive, right? Here's some reflective questions to ask at this point. Do we look at the needs of others, as if Jesus is standing right behind us? Do we give as though Jesus is standing behind us? Do we live as though he's standing behind us? Because he is. Generosity is one of those things that's pretty easy to understand the concept of, but significantly more difficult to apply. If you remember in Luke chapter 10, a lawyer comes to Jesus and he's trying to split hairs with Jesus about who his neighbor is. 
Because remember, Jesus says, love your neighbor. And so he says, well, who is my neighbor? You guys remember the story of the Good Samaritan. And so this Jesus wanted this guy not to learn something new, but to apply what he already knew. He already knew that he should love his neighbor. Now let's apply it in a practical way. And I think it's the same for us. We already know that we've been called to this kind of sacrificial generosity with our brothers and sisters. But oftentimes, it's easier, and we'd rather just talk about it than actually do it. In his Christ-centered commentary, Tony Merida challenges us. He says, all our talk is often a smokescreen for our lack of willingness to do what we know we can and should do. Brothers and sisters, we don't want to be people who can be described as being all talk, do we? Having wealth is not a sin, but selfishness is. Luke says here in Acts 4 that there was not a needy person among them. And I think at least in this moment, you could say there wasn't a greedy person among them either. Now that would soon change, as we'll see next week in chapter 5, But these Christians at this point in their life were were living together this way, sacrificially loving one another, willing to give from their own supply as the need arose. And as a result, it says, great grace was upon them all. And Luke gives us that example. Remember, he says, hey, here's my friend Barnabas. Look at his example. Look at what he does. It says that he's a Levite in verse 36 and 7. He's a native of Cyprus, and he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is a sacrifice. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Barnabas as far as his financial situation anyway. It's possible he was sort of wealthy. But uh, if, you, if you know the book of Acts, you see Barnabas' name pop up a couple other places. Uh, We have every reason to think that this is the same Barnabas that goes on a missionary journey with Paul later on. He's actually the first one in chapter 9 to accept the transformation of Saul uh, when, I mean, all the Christians are afraid of him because he's actively murdering Christians. And uh, Barnabas is one of the first guys to say, no, God's done a work in him. He's no longer the same person anymore. You see that in chapter 9, verse 26. Uh, He actually has a hand later on in reconciling Paul and John Mark. John Mark had kind of bailed on something, and so Paul didn't really trust him to continue on. And Barnabas says, no, he's good. We should bring him along. And so there's actually some reconciliation that comes back together there. And then in Acts chapter 11, the same Barnabas encourages the church in Antioch. He says, Continue, remain faithful to the Lord. And he exhorts them and encourages them in that way. So this is a fitting nickname for Joseph that the apostles give him. The ESV translates it son of encouragement. I think maybe your other translations say maybe son of comfort or son of exhortation. And that's the idea here. Uh, He had a generous heart and he was willing to give and encourage the saints. And so... Uh, This is what we see displayed in verse 37. He sells a field, he sells a piece of property, and he gives it to the apostles so that it could be used in helping others. Now Luke points out, he says, this guy's a Levite. 
And so he would have been descendant from the line of priests or the tribe of priests in Israel. And it's interesting, I, I don't exactly know why Luke includes this, except maybe for this reason, to show that not everyone associated with the temple was an enemy of the gospel. Because we see the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the temple was important to them. That was kind of their source of authority. They ruled there. Not everybody associated with the temple was opposed to the gospel, though, because Barnabas was all in. And he showed it by how he gave. So what do we do with this? Here's the application part of this morning. How do we, how do we apply it? The question probably has rattled around your mind already as we've read and talked this morning. Well, okay, does this mean that I should be selling property and belongings to increase our benevolent fund at the church? Is that what this is telling me? Uh, Should we be bringing our physical needs to the church maybe before we apply for government assistance? Other questions that could come up. My answer would be to these, maybe, But let's ask ourselves some other questions, maybe some more personal questions. Do I personally know a family in need? Might be helpful to look at that side study in the middle of your notes to kind of understand better the specifics that Paul gives to Timothy. But ask ourselves that. Do I personally know another family in need? Do I have the means to help them? Can I give from a heart that's unattached to my stuff? Can I give without expecting anything back in return? A couple other questions. How will my giving or not giving affect unity in the body of Christ? And then lastly, I want to spend a little bit of time on is this question, well, where does my identity come from? Does it come from the stuff that I have? If it comes from your stuff, I hate to break it to you, but you're too attached to that stuff. If who you are, the first thing you think of is what you own, you're too attached to your stuff. But if your identity comes from a relationship with Jesus, then your stuff is just that. It's stuff. And it can be used and freely given to help those in need. Our stuff doesn't have to define us. It shouldn't just define us. And it certainly shouldn't constrain us from helping others. God gives to you and me. God gives his blessings flow so that we can then turn around and be givers like God. So that we can give of what he has given us. See, the gospel unites us. It brings us together. It gives us genuine love for one another. But then it sends us out to share that love with the world. See, that's what's going on in the early church here in Acts. So you've got incredible things happening. People are being healed. They're sharing of what they have like no other time in history. But it doesn't always stay that way. And they don't always stay in Jerusalem. What did Jesus say at the beginning of Acts? Chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem And then the circles get bigger, right? Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. If they're just living in this wonderful place and sharing everything and nothing's ever wrong, there's a good chance they're not going to move beyond that. But God in his wisdom 
starts to help them understand they need to be moving outside of the church walls with this message, with this truth, with this kind of love. And the early church leaders, they looked at Joseph or Barnabas's life and they recognized him to be generous, to be encouraging. And so they gave him a nickname so that he was known for his sacrificial love. If mature believers were to look at your life and give you a nickname based on their observations, what might that nickname be? And would you be ashamed of it or proud of it? For what are you known? There's another way to ask that. I was thinking this week about our church body. So grateful for our church body. And I, I was thinking of nicknames that I might give some of you all. I'm not going to share them <laughs> with specific people. But here's, here's some of, here's some of the idea of what I'm talking about. I could think of some of you who are servant minded. Some of you who are considerate, prayer warriors, merciful, caring, empathetic, generous, courageous, and like, uh, like Barnabas, encourage the encourager. God has brought us together in a means of boldly spreading the gospel to people around us. And we do so all the more energetically and enthusiastically as we love each other well. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what God has designed us to be as a church, to love each other, but that love doesn't stay here, does it? It's, we're called then to expand those circles, maybe expand what we mean by family and start to, to share with those who need We'll talk about this more next week when we look inside the church and see some not so good stuff going on. But the truth is that Barnabas didn't have to sell a field. I mean, look, look back at the text. There's nowhere where it says he was required to do this. The love of God within him prompted him to do it. So the question that I want to ask us as we think about this this week is what might the love of God be prompting you to do for someone else this week. Maybe you're, you go back, take these notes home in your Bible, and you look back at some of those questions that maybe sting a little bit. And they're, they're questions like, do I know someone in need? And do I have the means to help someone in need? And maybe this is what God would be prompting us to do. Now, maybe you feel like you're on the outside looking in on all of this. Like, this sounds really nice, but you've never experienced this kind of love, this kind of sacrificial love in your life. I would encourage you, maybe as Barnabas would, and say, man, there's room for everyone. We were reading in our Sunday school hour from, I think it was the book of Ezekiel, you mentioned Brock, and we were talking about how the sins of the father uh, the son is not responsible for those sins. And yet, if you keep reading in that chapter that Brock mentioned, uh, several different times it says, and yet, for those who have disobeyed and for those who have sinned, if they truly turn away and they repent, they get wrapped into that family. They are received back. And so my encouragement would be is, you don't have to be on the outside looking in. The call 
to Christ is there. It's for you today. There's room for everyone in the family of God. There was a selfless and incredibly generous man who came before Barnabas who gave something even more surprising and valuable than a piece of property. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul tells Titus that our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Barnabas gave an awful lot here, right? But Jesus gave it all. We sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. He gave it all for you. He went to the cross for you. He took on himself the judgment of God that you deserve. And he did it because he loves you. John 3.16 says he loves you so much. But he also rose from the dead. So that you might have life eternal in him. And raised to new life. So our hope and and my prayer today and this morning is that you would find new life in Christ today. That you would understand what it means to be part of the family of God that gets wrapped in and showered with sacrificial love. Starting with the cornerstone of the church, right? Jesus, who demonstrated the ultimate act of sacrificial love. My prayer then would be that you would be wrapped up and would join with God's people in constantly celebrating what the Lord has done and is doing in us and through us by His Spirit in Clarksville and Painesville and Eolia and Pike County and beyond. All glory be to Christ, our King who gave it all. And so, look back, if you've got your notes open, just look back at some of those questions as we close this morning. How can I give sacrificially today? And I'm not talking about dropping a wad of cash in the offering box. If the Spirit's prompting you to do that, follow the Spirit. But I'm talking about genuine and practical love for your neighbor, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, both in the church and in our community. What might your sacrifice mean for them in regards to salvation and in regards to the gospel. God has blessed us, brothers and sisters, so that we can go and be blessings to those around us. Let's take that call and that challenge and that exhortation or encouragement like Barnabas and let's take that to heart this week and really be praying, God, what's one thing that I could do to show this outside of myself today, this week? Guys, he's going to bring you something He's going to show you something. Let's pray and let's ask the Spirit to prompt us in listening. Lord, I thank you that this is a beautiful thing. Lord, to be a part of a church body like Ramsey Creek that practices this so well in so many ways is, is to your glory. And we, gr- we gratefully acknowledge and thank you for that. And yet, Lord, you call us to go and, and be about this even more. You, you give us so that we can then be givers like you. And so I pray that we would. It, giving isn't what saves us. 
It isn't what earns your favor. It isn't what keeps our salvation. But how we give is a reflection of the work that you've done in our heart. And so I pray that you would make us joyful and generous givers. Maybe even sacrificing for the sake of others. God, this is going to include us being observant of what's going on around us. Because not everyone will ask for help when they need it. And so I pray that you would prompt us by your spirit this week, whether it's a church member here, a a member of another church, a community member who doesn't know you at all. I pray that we would listen to your prompting and that we would sacrificially give, always remembering in the back of our minds, we may give a lot, but you gave it all. And that that would spur us on to be zealous for these kinds of things. Do that work in your people today. In Jesus' name, amen.